Jenny Dearborn is the chief learning officer at the software giant SAP and has been recognized as one of the 50 most powerful women in technology. She believes that being data-oriented leads to more than just success in the marketplace. It fosters better leadership and creates happy organizational structures. Drawing on insights from her latest book, The Data-Driven Leader, Jenny discusses how we can use data to solve important leadership challenges and overhaul work cultures for the better. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's pure source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer. So my um, responsibility at SAP, um, there we go, that is problematic. Um, yeah. Um, so my uh, responsibility at SAP is looking at um, the future trends of uh, the workforce, the future of work, um, and to think about how these future trends are impacting our global workforce. So you have an, an, an outdated um, a bio for me, because there's 95,000 employees at SAP, um, and SAP is uh, one of the top uh, 20 uh, brands in the world. There's uh, the 490 of the top 500 corporations in the world use SAP software. Uh, most banks, most um, organizations, most manufacturers use SAP. 86% of the world's gross domestic product flows through SAP systems in the back end. So we are um, a, a significant uh, corporation when it comes to data and analytics. So part of my role is to think about um, what are the skills and experiences and uh, the workforce that we need at SAP two, five, seven years out. Um, and are the humans that we have today, the 95,000 humans that we have at SAP, are those the right humans to achieve our workforce strategy two, five, seven years out? Um, what is our strategy? What are the people that we're going to need in the future? Can I build that future workforce from the workforce that I have today? Or do I need to go outside and buy different humans? Um, and I travel around the world and I talk to our customers about this same challenge. And we are all converging on the same humans that we need around the world, which is um, a, a data scientist um, that has a deep understanding of humanity and human behavior, uh, but also is really grounded in uh, technology and statistics. Um, and a lot of corporations are converging on a very similar profile of the ideal talent in the future, and there's just not enough of them, right? Uh, we graduate about uh, 35,000 STEM graduates in the, in the United States a year. Um, and right now, today, there's uh, 350,000 open STEM jobs. So we just can't graduate enough of these humans, so we're going to have to create them uh, ourselves. So my responsibility is the creation of the future workforce at my corporation, and then also I consult with uh, corporations and governments around the world around their workforce development efforts, right? And everything I do is very grounded in, in uh, statistics and data and analytics, um, which is what the book is about. 
So I want to talk about the digital transformation and the future of work. So let's, um, let's start by uh, kind of setting ourselves in context of where we are today. Uh, we are on the precipice of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, we could say a long time ago, don't just look at me, just look at me. I don't want anybody having like an epileptic seizure. Just don't look at the screen. So a long time ago, a long time ago, we were subsistence farmers, right? You know, pretty much everybody. Um, and then we figured out how to put some sort of light manufacturing near uh, waterways, right? And that created the first industrial revolution, right? And then we figured out how to sort of divide up um, the uh, manufacturing process, and then we had um, the very first assembly lines, right? That started with, in Chicago with the slaughterhouse, right? With the meat industry. Um, people think of cars, but it's actually, um, it's actually meat processing. Um, and then we have another industrial revolution called the computer revolution, right? 1969, give it up if you're a Gen Xer born in 1969. Um, and then, there we go. Um, and, uh, and now we have the fourth industrial revolution. Right? And what is critical about the fourth industrial re revolution is cyber physical systems. Raise your hand if you've got some sort of Fitbit or Garmin or tracker or something, right? You are creating footprints of, of data behind you wherever you go. What about if you have some sort of smart device in your life, a thermostat, a security system, uh, your, your home appliances somehow, right? You're creating data, right, behind you. Um, so cyber physical systems is the coming together of the digital world and uh, the physical world. So that's where we are in the fourth industrial revolution. So there's six major trends that are shaping the future of work. We're going to talk briefly about each one of them. So big data, technology, how socially connected we are, the demographic shifts of, of who we are as a, as a species, how complex it is, and how fast markets are changing. So big data. Everything we do creates data, right? And that's why we are all converging on a very similar type of profile that we need in the future because corporations are waking up to, um, do you wanna just stay here, whoever my friend is that's helping me? Why don't we just, why don't we just stay here? Um, um, so corporations are really waking up to, you know, every corporation is becoming a data and analytics corporation, right? Uh, you thought that you were um, in the automotive industry, wrong. You are making a computer with wheels. Um, whatever, regardless of what industry you're in, that industry is creating data, and then you need to be able to mine that data to create insights. So, um, we, we, you've abandoned me. <laughs> My love, you've abandoned me. Um, so what we have in the future is imagine a hockey stick graph where um, we used to have um, a very small amount of data generated in our lives. Imagine, imagine a graph that is quite flat for a long time. And we're fine with that, right? Because there are sensors on bridges. That's fine. You need to know how much traffic. Right? And there are sensors in water pipes. That's fine. We need to know, you know how much water is flowing through. And there's sensors in gas pipes to see if there's a leak in the gas. We're fine with that. And then about 2009, we have um, what becomes the invention of IoT, Internet of Things. And at 2009, we start to see this hockey stick like this. So by 2020, we will have 50 billion connected devices in the world. 
which creates a tremendous amount of data, and all of that data needs to be mined, processed, and made sense of, right? So everything we're doing is creating this incredible tsunami of information, which re then requires um, data scientists to be able to say, well, what does this mean? What insights can you get from this? How does this affect you? Um, anybody in their corporations, raise of hands, if you have a tremendous amount of data you think that you're sitting on in your corporation, but there's really not anybody smart enough to tell you what it means, right? You got a lot of customers, they're doing a bunch of things. We don't really know how to segment our customers. Which ones are high margin? Which ones are low margin? Which ones are helping us? Which ones should we shed? We're not sure, right? Because we don't know how to make sense of the data. Okay, so that's the first major uh, trend is big data that's shaping the future of work and shaping the type of jobs and the shaping the type of education. The second is gonna be technology. Just like everything that can be put online will be, everything that can be automated will be automated, okay? So technology is the, is the second significant trend. So there's lots of different predictions around just how much work is gonna go to um, automation in the future, how much of our jobs. <clears throat> the one that I like to quote the mo most is 83% of jobs that earn less than $20 an hour will be eliminated to automation in the next five years, right? There's different quotes by McKinsey and da -da -da, all these different things that says 30% you know, of jobs, 50% of jobs in the next 10 years, the next five years, da -da -da, all different predictions, but nobody's saying it's not gonna happen except for our Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin. <laughs> um, <laughs> So um, the jobs that are most vulnerable um, right now are anything where you can create a very predictable process flow, right? So if you can think through a process flow chart and you can map, even if it's complex work, but you know exactly A always leads to B or an if-then statement, right? Um, that's work that's gonna at risk of automation or elimination to uh, machine learning, right? So right now, that's um, fast food, call centers, right? Retail, front of the house retail, uh, and drivers, right? So those are the four categories right now that are at the most risk. So for, um, let's just take a couple of those. So for retail, um, front of the house retail, 16 million people in the United States are in front of the house retail, not buyers and managers, but people who are actually doing the transaction, right? And it's our change in our buying behavior that is affecting this, right? So you can clearly see we are very comfortable buying things online from big brother Amazon, right? Um, and when we do, then there is less need for um, a physical retail space. Uh, we have about 30% excess retail square footage in the United States, which equates to about 4.8 million jobs, right? So we're seeing a direct correlation of um, stores that are closing. Primarily, it's in the middle of the United States, um, and it's those large malls, right? Those are the ones that are closing. So, so a lot of very significant impact there. Um, another is uh, driver, right? So the driver is the most self-identified role um, in the United States, right? Um, so visualize a map of the United States <laughs> and uh, about 75% of the states are colored in. 
um, except for California and the West Coast, except for the West Coast states. Um, and that is the primary self-identified job in the United States, right? 18 wheelers, truck drivers, bus drivers, transit, um, school bus, you know, all, every, every type of driver, taxi, Uber, Lyft, right? All those jobs, um, you know, not immediately, but it's on its way, right? Um, how many people have been into fast food um, and seen uh, and ordered on an iPad, right? Okay. Chipotle, I think they have them, a McDonald's for sure. Uh, the Melt has them, I've seen them. Certainly at the airport, they're all over the place. Um, so that's, again, that's the, the phasing in. Um, we are, so, that, so those are two significant trends, right? So big data and technology shaping the future of work. The next one is gonna be how socially connected we are is the third significant trend shaping the future of work and the future of jobs. So um, for us as a species, 50% of us as a species are, live in big cities. 50% of us are globally are online. About a third of us uh, globally are um, unique social media users. About a third of us are unique social media mobile users, right? Um, there is about a 30% decline every year of the sale of new laptops and new desktops, right? So we are a mobile social species. If you're a corporation and you don't have um, a uh, social media plan, a mobile interface to your product, um, if you don't have a mobile social presence, then you are absolutely shooting yourself in the foot because you are not connected to where the future generations are going, right? Um, about two-thirds of us uh, globally are unique mobile users. Um, I give this talk um, uh, all around the world, and I was in um, Thailand not too long ago, and, yeah, that's right, and um, in Thailand is the second most saturated uh, country in the world using Facebook behind the United States. Um, and there are, um, they get their news, entertainment, media, uh, everything from YouTube, right? More so than newspapers, magazines, um, every other form of media combined, right? So it is a mobile YouTube society. Um, so the, so those are the first uh, three most significant trends shaping the future of work. The fourth really is around demographic shifts. So we have known for a really long time, um, how many people have heard about the millennials? You ever heard that expression? I probably nobody's ever heard that word before. Okay, I'll tell you. So the youngest millennial right now is uh, 25, the oldest is 40. Um, and we've heard for a long time, uh, millennials are taking over the world. It's like, oh, magazines and everything. Um, if you're an awesome Gen Xer like me, you know, you have this massive baby boomers on one side of you and then the massive millennials on the other side, you got this tiny little nothing generation that was told to shut up all the time. So, which is fine, I'm fine with that. Um, so uh, we've heard forever that millenni you know, millennials are taking over the world. And at first all the research around millennials was, um, uh, just because of the volume, the number of humans, right? Then they were people were really paying attention and saying, "Well, what do you want to do? And how do you how do you feel? And what's important to you?" And 
And millennials were saying, I just want to have, I want to be socially connected. I want to do good in the world. I don't care about how much I earn. It's more important that I have lots of leisure time, things like that. It's amazing. Oh my God, these people, they're so different. And then you, you know, you ask them again 10 years later and they're like, well, I really got to pay the bills and things. So it, it turns out, it turns out that you ask anybody when they're 20 and they're going to say the same thing. So um, millennials really aren't that different than any other generation. There's just a lot of them. So um, their voice is very loud, right? I'm from a very small generation. Whatever we thought and felt really didn't matter. Um, but the millennials, just by sheer volume, right, by critical mass, have a huge voice. So that is significant. Um, what is... Um, what is different about, uh, about the future is, is really uh, about our demographics, is, is our life expectancy. Um, we are healthier longer. We are living longer. Um, if you are born today in North America, you have a 50% chance of living to 105. If you're born today in Japan, you have a 50% chance of living to 110. So um, this is the one I want you to see. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to close your eyes. Um, and if you are 70 today, you probably um, retired around 62, and you probably had about a 40-year career, right? Um, if you are 60 today, you are going to retire. You retire about 68. And yeah. And then you had about a 47-year career, OK? If you're 40 today, you're going to retire at about 72, and you will have about a 51-year career. If you're 30, uh, your life expectancy is 80, or excuse me, 98, 100. Your age of retirement is about 75, and you will have a 54-year career. If you're 20 today, you will live to 100. Your age of retirement will be 78, and you will have a 57-year career, right? Um, if you're 10 today, you will retire at 81, and you will have a 60-year career. So um, what does this mean for us as humans? Um, we're going to live longer, yay, but we're going to have to work a lot longer, right? That's fine. You don't want to sit on your porch on a rock, in a rocking chair for 50 years, right? <laughs> you know, you want to be doing stuff. You're going to be able to be doing a lot. Um, but that also has a pretty significant impact on corporations, right? Because you're going to have a lot of very capable older people. So we will see a change in uh, age discrimination. Right. So that our whole approach to, um, you know, the current law is something like uh, you're officially considered old and you can be um, you can file file an age discrimination suit if you're over 40. Uh, I think that's, you know, you know, so there's things will change in our in our corporate policies because we will have a very significant, capable, older population. Um, and if that's you, how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for a 50 or 60 year career? What do you learn? What do you study? How do you adjust um, to that amount of time, right? What's the answer? You tell me. We're not going to do Q in the, at the end. We're going to do it now. I'm asking the question. Love your how, job. What? Love your job. Love your job. Love okay. to learn. Love to learn. Never stop learning. Never stop learning. 
Get good health insurance. <laughs> Absolutely. Eat your vegetables. Keep up with the markets and trends. Keep up with the markets and trends. Entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, yeah. All good things. Everything's true. Gold star for everybody. Um, so not only um, will you be able to live longer and work longer, you will have to work longer. Um, um, imagine, visualize, if you will, um, a chart that has like by country and it says um, it has the uh, it has the global pension and retirement time bomb by country. And it, it, it visualizes, it's a image of just <laughs> how pressing um, the um, global pension system is that to illustrate um, that you can't retire early because you will not have the safety net country by country unless you're in Norway because of the sovereign wealth fund. Mm -hmm. But in most countries, there is a significant um, uh, retirement and safety net gap that will, that will not be there for you. Um, when you say, I have done my 50 years or 60 years, I'm ready to retire. Okay, government, where is my pension or my whatever retirement system? Those won't be there. So we have a very um, pressing challenge in front of all of us. So what is the answer? Lifelong learning, always being present, um, and keeping tr track of these trends. Yes, all of that is true. Um, our approach to education needs to be really different, right? Um, the old way um, is uh, described in research as the three-stage model. Um, you learn a thing, and you learn that thing for about the first 25% of your life. And then you go do that thing for 40 years and then you're retired and then you're dead. And that's, that's good. That's fine. Right. You know, I'm going to learn to be an accountant. I'm an accountant. I'm a retired accountant. I'm a dead accountant. It's all clean. It's easy. Right. Okay. But if you have to work for 60 years, what do you learn in that first learning part to get you ready for that, right? You have to be prepared for a very long career of work, learn, change, work, learn, change, work, learn, change, right? And what you learn in that, in that first part needs to be foundational to carry you through 60 years of change. So what do you learn to enable you to, for all of this technology change and all of this innovation to pile on top of it? What, what is that foundation? How to learn. How to learn. So it's good. Quick tangent. Have you ever heard of the company Coursera? It's an online. Okay. So Coursera, the number one course in Coursera is called How to Learn. 80% of people who go to Coursera already have a college degree, right? But they're going back because they need to learn something new. But first they got to, oh, I got to figure out how to learn before I go learn. So that's interesting. Okay, so what are those foundational things that you, you learn before you, to, to get you ready for 60 years of change? Huh? Building relationships. Sure. Critical thinking. Critical thinking. Adaptive learning. Adaptive learning. What? Personal branding. Personal branding, sure. Emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, God bless you. What? Self-motivation. Self-motivation, all true. Critical thinking, problem solving, 
empathy, active listening, emotional intelligence, cross-cultural awareness, right? What are these things have in common? It's your fundamental human skills. These are what make you human, right? This is what can't be outsourced. This is what can't be automated. This is what won't go to artificial intelligence. This is what robots cannot do, right? What? Yet. Ah, wait, no. There's two types of um, uh, artificial intelligence, broad, sorry, that's the wrong gesture, narrow and broad. <laughs> narrow and broad. Uh, there's two types of artificial intelligence. So narrow artificial intelligence is very sophisticated. That is like Watson um, AI that beat the ch bar Bobby Fisher chess, blah, 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 right? I mean, that's narrow AI, narrow AI can do something that's very, very specific. There is broad AI, which is empathetic and has emotional intelligence and can adapt and learn, that is science fiction still to this day. And there is no product roadmap that anybody has invented on how to get to broad AI. That is what is for humans to do, right? It doesn't matter. Um, uh, it, it doesn't matter what your job is. Yes, 83% of jobs that earn $20 an hour are going away, but there's also the work that radiologists are doing. That's no small amount of school or student loans to be a radiologist. There is no human in the world that can read an x-ray better than AI, right? So everybody will be affected, regardless of your education level. So our approach to education needs to be different. If you are memorizing in school a very specific path, a, um, if you are memorizing a series of steps, absolutely not. That is absolutely what AI will do, right? If there is a very particular if-then statement sequence for what you are learning, um, you know, a, a lot of countries where this talk does not go well. Um, but we have a chance here um, and what's cool about Ivy, which is like Ivy League, as in liberal arts, um, that's probably one of the best things that you can invest in, in your with your time and your intelligence is that, is that, is that very open-minded um, liberal arts perspective um, to the future in terms of preparing yourself for the future of work, right? Critical thinking, problem solving, emotional intelligence. These are your fundamental human skills that cannot be outsourced, right? And cannot be eliminated to automation. So the World Economic Forum says there are 16 skills uh, for, required for the future of work. Um, foundational literacies, how students apply core skills to everyday tasks, literacy, numeracy, scientific literacy, information and communication technology, financial literacy, cultural and civic literacy. And then competencies, how students approach complex challenges, critical thinking, problem solving, creativity, communication, collaboration, right? And then character qualities, how students approach the, their changing environment. <clears throat> Curiosity, initiative, persistence, grit, adaptability, leadership, social and cultural awareness, right? These are the skills that will differentiate humans from automation in the future. So typically people say, what should I have my kids study? Remind them how to be human, right? How to question and how to care. Um, and 
this is the sort of the same approach that we take for um, each major wave of industrial revolution, right? Um, is we think about as each, you know, I've, we've studied each industrial revolution and what are the jobs that go away and the jobs that are built, the skills that disappear in the first industrial revolution and the skills that came online, right? Um, and then for the second industrial revolution, same thing, jobs that went away, jobs that came, skilled, the skills that disappeared, skills that came online. Um, and it's basically the same pattern uh, that we should be employing as we look to the future, right? Is what can't technology do? What, is, what makes us uniquely human? How can we excel in that, double down in that, and do that exceptionally well? That's how we stay ahead of robotics, right? That's why we stay ahead of artificial intelligence. Um, jobs that are particularly at risk, um, in addition to the ones that we already mentioned, loan officers, receptionists, retail sales, taxi drivers, security guards. Um, we will have, um, uh, let's see, by, uh, by 2030, we will spend more time interacting with artificial intelligence than we'll spend communicating with our family. Um, there are some countries that are better at this than others. Um, a lot of the country, the, the country that always comes out on the, the wrong end of every study is Japan. A lot of that's because of the aging population um, and, the, um, and the overall sh shrinking population. So the, the, a, a decline in their birth rate and an aging population. And their um, age, aged population is very anti-technology. So, um, so they, they tend to, um, on every... Uh, study around which countries are faring best and which countries are faring worst. Japan always comes out um, at the end of that, um, on the wrong end of all those studies. Um, and actually millennials in uh, Japan, uh, one third of millennials in Japan feel that they will die at their desks. Um, so there is a, a general uh, malaise in, um, in, in Japan around the future of work. Um, the fifth major trend shaping the future of work is certainly complexity. Um, how, yes, ma'am. So just to rewind a little bit, when you mentioned um, we're going to win if we focus on the things that make us very human, but on the other hand, we're going to spend more time in the office managing machines and algorithms and less time dealing with people. Families are getting smaller. There's less interact. You know, your average child now has less siblings. They're less likely to live with their grandparents. So if the children of the future are going to spend less time around humans, interacting with humans in a human way, how do they retain the key bits of what does make them human and what is valuable? How do they, how do they learn judgment and EQ and human interaction if there's less and less opportunity to do that, especially if we focus on STEM in schools at the detriment of the humanities? And the well, I think it's an opportunity for a pretty significant wake-up call. Did everybody hear the question okay? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I recently read about uh, babies having detachment disorder, uh, attachment disorder, because I mean, you you do know people who are moms, you do know that the length of the arm um, is exactly the length that a baby can focus when it's born, right? You know that. So breastfeeding and giving eye contact, the only thing that a baby can actually focus on is the mother's face, and that's exactly the length of the arm. So. Um, but if you're breastfeeding and you're going like this with your phone at the same time, then that baby develops, you know, can. 
So, um, the, yeah, so there are, um, I, I do a lot of uh, working with schools, and um, it is not an insignificant challenge that we have in front of us. Um, we have rotated hard towards STEM in uh, schools. Um, you know, like I said before, we're only graduating, you, you know, a tenth of the STEM um, graduates that we need to fill the open jobs. Um, <clears throat> but the leaders of the future, the people who are truly successful, are the ones that can ask the right questions, um, not just program code, right? It's what are we really trying to solve with this technology? Um, what what are the what are the human challenges that this technology is going to give to us? Um, it is it is my personal opinion um, that uh, we have swung too hard to as a technologist. I believe we've swung too hard towards STEM in elementary schools. They need exposure, um, but they also need to understand uh, their. Human, you know how to exercise their human skills, and there's plenty of time to introduce STEM in terms of curriculum uh, in middle schools and beyond. Um, there's a lot of games that kids can play to introduce STEM, um, uh, but we have to be careful about too much technology. I, I live in Palo Alto. Um, uh, my social circle and my neighborhood are tech executives. Um, I put my kids in a Montessori school. Um, and lo and behold, that's where I met my social network with all the other tech executives who also had their kids in a Montessori school because all of us tech executives know that we don't want our kids using technology. So, you know, the CEO of YouTube is a good friend. You know, her kids and my kids played together when they were infants. You know, we. You know, that social circle is, have rotated hard towards um, alternative education for their kids. Steve Jobs was anti-technology in his home. Absolutely not. His kids could not have a phone or an iPad or anything. Um, why is that? I don't know. Interesting. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah. I kind of went off on a big tangent. Um, okay, complexity. So a significant trend in the future of the world is how complex our environments are, um, how matrix they are. How many people work in a matrix corporation? Yeah. How many people have more than one boss? Yeah. Uh, I have seven. Um, so um, we see complexity uh, growing in um, how we are spread out geographically, how we are spread functionally in corporations. Um, we see it in the growing number of um, uh, contingent workers, freelancers, self-employed. Um, we are at 40% uh, uh, in the United States now of freelancers self-employed, um, and we're trending towards 50%. Uh, um, but that trend is the opposite of what research says people actually want. So when people are asked, what is most important to you, rank in your job what is most important, what comes out on top is stability and security, still. And I would rather have stability and security than high risk, high reward, right? So, but what you're getting is a, is a work environment that has greater 
um, uh, greater risk, greater instability, more flexibility, yes, but not the security that people are looking for. And then the chart is basically what uh, is trending in the opposite way. So our reality is opposite of what people are actually looking for. Um, and we're also seeing greater complexity um, in corporations in terms of our expectations. So it used to be the case that if you came into a corporation, um, you would say, well, I had this job, and if I just keep, keep at it, um, I'm going to get recognized, and I'm going to get every, you know, every couple of years, I'm going to get a bigger scope, I'm going to get a bigger title, I'm going to get a little bit more money. I'm going to get a better office. I'm just going to stick with it. And I'm just, you know, last man standing, right? I'm just going to keep rising. And, you know, I've worked in a lot of different tech companies. And that is, that's still the case, right? There's this expectation that, you know, you'll just keep increasing. And that's not going to be the case if you're going to have a 50 or 60 year career, right? Um, you're, you might start at something and then you're going to learn it and be an expert and then you might be a leader in that particular space and then something's going to change and it's going to fall out the bottom and you're going to have to regroup and you're going to have to learn again and then maybe you're going to start over with something new and become an expert and then learn that and then be a leader in that space and then you might have to regroup, right? So you should expect... So your personal savings, your personal sort of men, men, mental outlook, your expectations, your um, frequency that you are constantly educating yourself and going back and getting stackable micro degrees from Coursera or going back to university extension or being a part of communities like this. I mean, you constantly need to be learning and learning and growing to stay ahead of that curve, right? So you don't get knocked down every, right, every 20 years. Right, because you're going to have 60 years. Maybe not you, but your kids. Um, uh, our markets are shifting rapidly. Um, that's the next, the last, the sixth significant trend shaping the future of work is um, rapidly shifting markets. And we see this play out in a number of ways. Um, certainly the rate of innovation um, is happening at a staggering pace. Uh, the compression of wealth, the shift in jobs. Um, I'm going to ask you to visualize something here. So 1990, the three largest companies in 1990 were automotive companies, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler. Um, they had a market capitalization, right, the value of their stock, 36 billion market cap. Um, they had a uh, 250 billion in revenue, but 1.2 million employees in their total supply chain, right? Up to the point of sale. So creating the good to be sold, growing the steel, you don't grow steel, making the steel, um, uh, making the leather, making the components, putting it all together, all the thing, not car sales, used car sales, aftermarket hubcaps, nothing after sale, just to the point of sale. So you're not old enough, but uh, you know, there was an expression when I was a kid that was said, if it's good for the car company, it's good for America, right? 1.2 million employees in those three companies. That's a lot, right? These are good jobs. These are middle class jobs. These are blue collar jobs. These are high school diploma jobs, a lot of them. Um, only 10% of the jobs 
um, in those three companies, in that 1.2 million, um, you needed to have a university degree, right? These are jobs in the middle of the country, for the most part, right? Um, <clears throat> fast forward 25 years, the three largest companies, right? Google, Facebook, Apple, uh, because of stock evaluation, right? It's, uh, so 2015, 1.09 trillion market capitalization, about the same revenue, right? 247 billion in revenue. But how many employees? You tell me. How many employees that supports that much market cap? Huh? 200K? 150K? 137,000 employees. Everything up to the point of sale, right? One-tenth the number of employees, right? 100% of the people in these companies need to have um, a, an undergraduate degree. 50% of them have a graduate degree, right? Those jobs all moved to the West Coast, right, for the most part? Um, <coughs> And, uh, and who benefits from the stock, right? Should also say, you know, 30 years ago, I just read this in The Economist. Let me try and get this data point right. Um, uh, 30 years ago, 80% of, no, 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 not 30 years ago. 1950, 80% um, of the people in the United States owned stock, right? Now it's 5%. So when we say, yay, the stock market, who's yay? <laughs> is, it, is it us? Is it, it's institutional investors, right? Um, so when the stock market does really well, that's good for the overall economy. Is that good for every average person? Um, so it's a significant compression of wealth, right? 137,000 employees in those three companies, everything to the point of sale. Um, and, um, and a tremendous, uh, you know, how many people have, no, have heard of or know of a friend or a friend of a friend or somebody who became a, a, a dot-com millionaire, yeah? And all of a sudden they're driving some cr crazy car and you're like, dude, you're just gonna, you're gonna lose it. Um, so it's interesting around, it says something, so this is about the um, rapidly shifting markets, the rate of innovation, the rate of change, right? Um, I mean, the internal combustion engine is, is in 50 years, I, I predict, is gone. Um, so um, also when we talk about the, uh, the shift in, in, our, uh, in our workforce, uh, remember the Great Recession. 2008 is when the Great Recession started. We hit bottom at uh, 2010. We came out the other side. Economists said we're done in, t in 2014. Right, um, we lost in that amount of time high wage jobs from 2008 to 2014. We lost a million high wage jobs. We lost a million mid wage jobs. We gained two million low wage jobs. So you can say from 2008 to 2014, we're back to full employment, but we're significantly underemployed. Right. Um, so, and, and now we know, and these low wage jobs, right? These are jobs that earn less than $20 an hour, right? High wage jobs are uh, uh, $50 an hour, considered $50 an hour, high wage jobs. 
So jobs are re re redistributing the type of jobs, right? That's what's happening. Um, in 2015, there was an interesting uh, research study um, where uh, uh, machine learning went out and scraped every single open job rec that was publicly posted across the United States, um, monster.com, wherever. And then they took all those jobs and then they organized them based on how much salary, what's the pay for those jobs. So the top 25% of all po publicly posted jobs in 2015, 50% of that top 25 required programming skills. No programming skills required for the bottom 25% of jobs, right? Ba organized by salary, by pay, right? Um, so the code, you know, so it's really code to riches, right? It's a road to riches. Um, so um, <laughs> what's significant is around the role of technology, right? Every company is becoming a technology company. Um, and everybody thinks they need a data scientist because they don't know how to make sense of all their data. And we're sort of all converging on the same type of talent, right? Um, we know that um, there's not enough uh, diversity in tech. Um, and um, we know that the funnel uh, for your question about what we do with, with kids and technology. So in um, elementary school and middle school, um, we know that 65% of boys express interest in tech, interest in STEM, right? 35% uh, of girls express interest in STEM. Um, in college, 82% of STEM graduates um, are male. This may not be STEM, this might be uh, computer science. Um, to 18% female. Uh, in tech positions, 75% male. To entry-level tech positions, 25%. To tech executives, there's 11% female tech executives in the country. Um, I drive a Tesla because I have to, it's the law. And, um, and um, in my, I can't remember what the red card means now. It means I'm half done? Wrap it up. All right. Um, Keep going. Okay. Okay. So I drive a Tesla because it's law. And every day I get in my car, um, and there's a big computer screen on front, and there's like, it's, it sells, it's just like your phone. It says there was a soft, software update overnight, and now your car does this that it didn't do yesterday. And you're like, okay, I'll figure that out. And um, it doesn't do this yet, but it will. Um, it, it um, because I know people are talking about this because their Tesla's office is right across from mine, so I know people there. So they're, they're talking about um, what to do when there is an unavoidable collision, right? So my car is going along, and my car sees some, some figures up ahead. It sees too tall and too short, and it probably says that's a family, right, with two kids. So my car is going to figure that out. And my car can see those figures faster than me. And my car can respond faster than I can. And my car has to make a decision. What does my car do? There's an unavoidable collision. Does my car decide to sacrifice the driver uh, and save the pedestrians? Or does my car decide to save the pedestrians? And did I say the same thing twice? Sacrifice, you get what I'm saying. Um, yeah. And 
my car knows that I'm the only one in the car, right? Because the car knows like handle and the weight and the seats and what da, da da My car knows that I'm the only one there. And my car also knows it's me because it recognizes your weight pattern and it, it says, welcome, Jenny. Or if my husband comes in, it says, welcome, John. So, so my car knows that it's me um, and that it sees that there's an, what is my car going to do? What is my car going to decide? It's going to levitate. It's going to levitate. I don't know. My car, I don't know what my car is going to do. But somebody made the decision. Someone is making the decision right now of what my car is going to do. And I need to know that the people that are in that room having that conversation about what my car is going to do, that these people are really thinking hard. They're using their fundamental human skills with their STEM stuff on top, right? Because they're so smart, right? And what, you know, I want them to, I want to know that they're really struggling with this and they're having a deep, challenging, ethical conversation. Right. And I need to know that there's diversity in that room. Right. And it's not just people whose parents hoarded opportunities and sent them off to the most expensive, awesome school imaginable. But I want to know that there's people from all walks of life and all socioeconomic backgrounds and all perspectives and experiences uh, and all ways of identifying themselves. I need to know that there's a diverse, rigorous, challenging conversation in that room and every other room like it that is figuring out what to do with technology, right? So that when I, you know, when that unavoidable collision is about to happen, it's the right decision. I don't know what the right decision is, but I want someone to really struggle to figure that out. That's why we need diversity in tech, because everything is becoming tech, right? Every industry is becoming technology. And we know that tech jobs pay better, right? Um, if you have a high school diploma, this one I don't have memorized, if you just have a high school diploma, your lifetime earnings are $0.058 million. $0.058. How much is that? It's not a lot. $580,000 of your lifetime. No, that's $58,000. $58,000 if you have a high school diploma, lifetime earnings. Um, lifetime earnings of a college graduate, 1.19 million. College lifetime earnings in 2015. Um, lifetime earnings for a computer science um, graduate, 2.67 million. So you take college grads, all college grads, you add them together, and then you take out computer science, and they're going to earn almost twice as much. Um, so we are turning hard towards tech, right? Um, every industry has become a tech industry. Everything that's going online can be. Everything that's being automated can be. Um, it's going to affect every level of job. Um, and we need to make sure that there's diversity uh, of the people that are in the room, right? Because there's some really, really challenging ethical conversations coming up. Um, is it all doom and gloom? I, I don't think so. Um, my uh, perspective is very optimistic. Um, I think with um, honesty and looking at a problem squarely in the face and being uh, very transparent about um, our hopes and fears and our, and our anxieties and our wishes and, um, and very honest with uh, information and, and data and, um, and what the truth looks like. 
that this is something that we can tackle, um, you know, together as a country, as a world. Um, we need to have a, a, a real um, uh, groundswell of uh, a movement towards education um, in the country. Um, I was not around, but um, I've read a lot about the um, Sputnik moment when Sputnik went across the sky and Kennedy said, it is the most patriotic thing that you can do is to become an engineer um, because we have to win the space race. Um, and so there is a huge movement, right? I mean, you see it in the numbers. You would see it in the numbers if you could um, around the number of people who you know, went into, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to serve my country. And the best way for me to do that, since we're not at war, um, is to study math and science um, in, uh, in university. Um, and we need to have that similar type of movement now um, to understand um, how to build a, a very, very strong human ethical foundation and how to layer on top of that an understanding of constant change, constant learning uh, for the long haul, right? Um, and a way to embrace technology as it changes frequently. That's our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Yavi podcast. Don't forget, for more information about the Ivy community and to find out about live events happening near you, visit ivy.com. That's ivy.com. See you next time. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer.